I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Why are we so intrigued with the paranormal, despite not having any evidence that unearthly things exist at all? The answer for me is quite simple. It's because everyone loves a good story. Creepy scary ones. Ones that make you nervous to turn off the lights. Join me, Nicole, at Unearthly Paranormal Stories as I share true, mysterious, and sometimes downright terrifying tales from real people in a fun, unique, and spooky way. Find Unearthly Paranormal Stories on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information or to tell me a story, check out our website at www.unearthlypodcast.com. to Misconduct, I'm your host, Colleen. I am excited to announce that Misconduct is going to be attending the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th in Chicago. Chicago is one of my absolute favorite cities, so come hang out with me and a bunch of other really great podcasts. You're really not going to want to miss this. Go to the website tcpf2019.com to find information about tickets and the event. When you buy your ticket, make sure you mention misconduct on the ticket registration survey. I will also be in Manchester on July 6th and London on July 7th and 8th for the Gen Y They Walk Among Us meetups. I spoke with Rosie from They Walk Among Us and the events are completely sold out. So I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody there. Let me know if you plan on being at the Chicago Festival or at any of the UK meetups because I would love to meet any misconduct listeners who attend. And finally, like I mentioned in my last two episodes, this will be the last episode released before I take a few weeks off in May. There will be no episodes released on the 16th or the 30th. I will be returning with a new episode on June 6th. Thank you guys so much for understanding, and with that, let's get into the episode. This week takes us to Missouri in the 1960s, where we discuss the story of Sharon Kinney a housewife with a body count. 
What started out as an accidental shooting investigation quickly unraveled into a large-scale investigation into multiple murders and the prime suspect on the run. Just when authorities believed Sharon had been brought to justice, serving out her prison sentence in Mexico, she slipped away, never to be seen or heard from again. On March 19, 1960, Sharon Kinney, a 20-year-old housewife and mother of two, was in her bathroom of her modest home in Independence, Missouri. James Kinney, Sharon's husband of four years, was napping in their master bedroom. The couple had two children, two-and-a-half-year-old Dana and Troy, who was just an infant. From the bathroom, Sharon could hear Dana toddling about the house, babbling away as young children tend to do. But suddenly, Sharon heard a gunshot. She ran to the master bedroom to find James bleeding from a gunshot wound to the head, their daughter standing nearby, and a recently fired gun laying on the bed. Sharon called an ambulance, and James was taken to a nearby hospital where he was pronounced dead. Police arrived at the Kinney home and began their investigation, starting with how the shooting could have happened. A distressed Sharon recounted the events of the afternoon. Her husband, who was known to be careless with his firearms, had left a loaded .22 laying next to him as he napped. It was within easy reach of their two-year-old daughter, who had been around guns her entire life, and at this age knew how to hold a gun and knew how to pull a trigger. When police were unable to pull fingerprints off the newly cleaned and well-oiled gun, they had come up with another way to figure out who handled the weapon and killed James. They tested little Dana with a similar unloaded gun to see if the child would be capable of pulling the trigger, and she was. Dana's ability to pull the trigger combined with an upset widow and no other evidence to the contrary meant the death of James Kinney was ruled a tragic accident. The chief of police was quoted at the time saying, I thought she was credible and she was very distraught and it was very genuine. Then for me, it became a problem of if the little girl did it, what a shame. It's just a terrible tragedy. Now, if that was all there was to this story, it probably would not have maintained interest over the last 50 plus years. James's death would have probably been a footnote in news archives or perhaps used as an example of the dangers of leaving a loaded firearm unattended. The truth, however, proved to be much more interesting. Sharon Kinney was 16-year-old Sharon Hall when she met James. She had recently returned to Independence, Missouri, where she had grown up, and her family had been living in Washington, where her father had been relocated for work. Sharon met James at a church function in 1956. Sharon was instantly attracted to the 22-year-old college student, and the feeling was mutual. The pair dated until it was time for James to return to his college in Utah. Sharon was devastated when James left, and she wrote him a letter telling him that she was pregnant. When James learned he was going to be a father, he returned to Independence with the intention of marrying Sharon. The pair quickly married, however, it is interesting to note that their marriage certificate lists Sharon as an 18-year-old widow. When asked, Sharon said that she had been married briefly in Washington, and her husband had died in a car accident. No one asked any further questions, 
and when reading about Sharon, you start to get the feeling that she's not the woman who was often challenged. James was a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, as was the rest of his family. Sharon and James's wedding was held in a church, as Sharon had not yet converted, but after she converted, a second, more official ceremony was held in the temple. Once the couple were married, the Kinneys returned to Utah, where James was finishing his education, but this move wouldn't last long. Soon after their marriage, the Kinneys moved back to Independence, with James and Sharon taking whatever work they could find. The pregnancy that Sharon wrote to James about unfortunately ended in a miscarriage. Shortly after, Sharon became pregnant again and gave birth to a healthy baby girl who the couple named Dana. A couple of years later, their son Troy was born and the family was complete. The Kinneys lived a modest life in Independence, with Sharon staying home with the children and James working for the Bendix Aviation Corporation in Kansas City. His income was enough to support the family, but Sharon often complained about their standard of living. She wanted a new car, a vacation, and nicer things, but James insisted that they live within their means. This disagreement over their finances led to arguments, and the couple frequently fought about the issue. During their marriage, Sharon had at least one affair with a childhood friend named Jeff Boldies, who would appear in her narrative every so often. Everything came to a head in early 1960 when Sharon and James started talking about divorce. Sharon wanted the house, full custody of their children, and $1,000, which James thought was unreasonable considering the circumstances. But Sharon held firm in her demands, even though she confided in John that she didn't think that she could handle the upkeep of the house and the care of the children alone. James sought advice from his parents, who reminded him that a divorce would be going against their faith. This prompted James to persevere with the marriage for a little longer, even though the arguments over money continued. James would die before the couple could divorce, leaving Sharon Kinney a widow with an insurance payout, rather than a divorcee with a mortgage. James's death prompted an insurance payout. The amounts vary in the research, but the most common figure is around $25,000. Adjusted for inflation, this would be well over $200,000 in today's money. The amount ensured that Sharon's home was paid off, and less than a month after her husband's death, she got her dream car, a Thunderbird convertible. On April 18th, less than a month after the car was purchased, Sharon decided that her new car needed air conditioning installed, so she took it to a local business to have the job done. Sharon was served by Walter Jones Jr., a military man turned car salesman. Walter managed to talk Sharon out of installing air conditioning in her car and convinced her to buy a new car that already had air conditioning in it. Not long after this, Sharon began dating Walter. However, Walter was married to his high school sweetheart, 23-year-old Patricia, but he had a history of extramarital affairs. Walter would tell Patricia that he was working late when he was really out with other women. The affair with Sharon was no different. Patricia would be home with the children while Walter was out working late. 
Patricia knew there was more to the story, and the couple argued about where Walter really was on all those evenings away from home. Less than a month after the affair began, Sharon asked Walter to leave his wife and accompany her to Washington for a short getaway. Some newspapers report that Walter had lost his job around the time that the affair started, and Sharon offered financial aid in exchange for company on her trip. However, Walter declined to go with Sharon. Undeterred, Sharon left her children with their paternal grandfather and went to Washington with her brother, reportedly giving Walter $100 before she left. Upon her return on May 25th, Sharon asked to speak with Walter. She believed that she was pregnant and once again asked Walter to leave his wife to be with her. Instead, Walter ended their relationship. He wanted her to wait and see about the pregnancy and said that they would deal with things when she was 100% sure that a baby did or did not exist. Home pregnancy tests were still nearly a decade away from being invented and Sharon hadn't visited a doctor to confirm the pregnancy. Walter's refusal to leave his wife infuriated Sharon. An angry Sharon began to plan. The next day, May 26th, Sharon called Patricia, posing as her own sister. Interestingly enough, Sharon doesn't actually have a sister. Sharon, pretending to be her, quote, sister, told Patricia that Sharon was having an affair with Walter and asked if they could meet up to talk about it. Patricia, who was already fairly certain that her husband was cheating on her, agreed to meet with Sharon's sister. The women arranged to meet that evening. Patricia carpooled home from her job as a clerk at the Internal Revenue Office located in nearby Kansas City. She carpooled with a married couple that she worked with named the Hursts. That evening, Patricia told Robert Hurst that she needed to make a brief stop and asked to be dropped off at an intersection in Independence. Patricia said that she would be just a minute and asked the carpool to wait for her because she wasn't expecting this errand to take long. After walking to a car and talking to the driver, Patricia returned and said that they could go on without her. She said that she would be going in the other car and that she would see them tomorrow at work. The carpool, feeling that something was wrong, followed Patricia in the other car for a few minutes before deciding that they were being silly and headed home. They would later tell police that the vehicle was driving east, but they didn't know the destination. That would be the last time that Patricia was seen alive. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Walter returned that evening to an empty house. He had recently been employed at another auto agency, and when Walter arrived home from work, he was used to being greeted by a well-lit house, his wife cooking dinner in the kitchen, and his children playing in the yard. This is not what he found on this night. The lights were off and dinner wasn't ready, and his wife and children were nowhere to be seen. The phone rang and the babysitter was on the other line asking why Patricia was so late picking up their children. Walter made up an excuse for why Patricia hadn't picked up the children and asked the babysitter if the children could stay for the night, which the babysitter agreed to. Patricia had never been late before and was described as a great attentive mother, so the babysitter accepted this rare request. Once he was sure that the children were safe and taken care of, Walter called the police. After filing a report with the police, Walter called the couple who carpooled with Patricia. The couple told Walter about the events of that afternoon and the last-minute change of plans. They explained that Patricia had requested to be dropped off to meet someone, and she had insisted she would get home with the person she was meeting. The carpool couple told Walter they saw Patricia get into a light-colored Chevrolet with a woman they didn't recognize but were able to describe in some detail. From the description, Walter knew the woman was Sharon, and he made his next phone call. On the phone, Sharon admitted to calling Patricia and then meeting her to tell her about the affair. Sharon then agreed to meet Walter in person the next day to talk about when she last saw Patricia. This face-to-face meeting happened the next day, on the 27th of May. Sharon maintained that she had just spoken to Patricia and had no idea what happened to her after she dropped her off a half a block away from their home. Almost immediately, Sharon changed her story and said that she saw Patricia get into another car after she had been dropped off, this time driven by an unknown man. Walter didn't believe Sharon, and things turned physical with Walter holding a knife to Sharon, demanding to know the truth. Walter also searched Sharon's bag for a gun, but he didn't find the twenty-two that he knew she carried. After her husband's death, Sharon wanted the 22 that had killed James back, but it was still being held in evidence. She was unable to give a reason for why she wanted it back, but she did put in a request for it. Once she resigned herself to the fact that the gun that killed her husband was not going to be returned to her, Sharon had a friend buy her a similar gun. It was originally registered under Sharon's name, but then Sharon insisted the friend register it under his name instead. 
the friend didn't ask too many questions and did as Sharon had instructed. Once Walter realized he wasn't getting any more information from Sharon, the two parted ways. Walter went home, and Sharon went to meet John, the childhood friend she had been having an affair with. It was an on-again, off-again relationship, which was at the moment back on. Sharon, with unknown motivation, suggested that she and John go out looking for Patricia. She told John that she felt bad, and perhaps she had upset Patricia when they spoke. However, this is unlikely to be the real reason she wanted to go out looking for her. Sharon suggested that they check the back roads and secluded spots in case Patricia was out, quote, parking with a man. John, unsure of why Sharon was so concerned with looking for Patricia, suggested that they go out and do some parking of their own, which is how they came to be in an isolated spot near an abandoned farmhouse that was known as a local lover's lane. Phelps Road was just south of Independence, and that's where couples often went to park. And it was where Sharon and John found Patricia Jones lying on her side in the road. John wanted to call the police immediately, but Sharon insisted that she be taken home first. She was the last person to see Patricia alive, and she knew that she would be first on the suspect list. Sharon was taken home and instructed John to make up a story that didn't involve her, and then John was sent off to the police. It was after 1 a.m. on the 28th of May before police got to the crime scene and found Patricia's bullet-ridden body. Patricia was wearing a yellow skirt and black sweater, which is what she was wearing when she got into the car with Sharon. She had been shot four times, once in the stomach, once in each shoulder, and once in the head. A Honolulu Advertiser article about the killing describes the gunshots as being in a cross-like pattern. Walter was called and asked to help with the identification of his wife. An autopsy revealed no sign of sexual assault and placed the time of death between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. on the 27th of May. Patricia's funeral was held on May 31, 1960, and she was 23 years old. Sharon's boyfriend John was questioned by police as they tried to work out how he came to be in the isolated spot known as Lover's Lane alone on a Friday night. John tried to talk his way around it, but eventually admitted that he had been there with Sharon and that she had asked not to be mentioned. Once police knew Sharon was involved, she was taken to the police for questioning. John, Sharon, and Walter submitted to polygraph tests, after which John was released, Walter was released on bail as a material witness, and Sharon was arrested for Patricia's murder. It wasn't long before the prosecutor drew a link between Patricia's murder and James's accidental death. James's case was reopened, and Sharon was charged with his murder as well. Held without bail, Sharon gave birth to a daughter while in custody. While there is controversy over who fathered the baby, most believe that it was Walter. Sharon maintained that the baby was fathered by her husband very shortly before his death. 
There is very little information available, but New Jersey newspaper, The Courier News, reported that the baby was born eight months after Sharon told Walter that she was pregnant, more than 10 months after her husband died, making Walter the most likely father of the baby. The first trial was for the murder of Patricia Jones. The courtroom was bursting at the seams as people gathered to hear the evidence presented by both sides. The police and coroner gave their testimony, and the prosecution was quietly confident that their evidence, though circumstantial, would be enough to get a conviction. The defense argued that the time of death was incorrect. Witnesses had eventually come forward saying that they were parking in the exact location that Patricia was found around the time of her death. The defense also argued that Patricia couldn't have been killed at the time the coroner declared because the witnesses would have heard or seen something. You may be wondering why these witnesses didn't come forward sooner, and so did the police. It turned out that these witnesses were married, just not to each other, and coming forward would mean admitting to their spouses that they were having an affair. Sharon's brother took the stand and provided her with an alibi. He testified that he saw Sharon at their grandmother's house, looking and acting normal, on the night that Patricia was murdered. When he was cross-examined, though, he said that he was driving to the Ozarks that day, which called his sighting of Sharon into question. The prosecution suggested that he was going to the Ozarks to dispose of the murder weapon, which was denied by her brother. The defense focused on the lack of physical evidence tying Sharon to Patricia's death. The murder weapon hadn't been found, and with no murder weapon to match to, the prosecutor had to think outside the box. They managed to find the last owner of the gun, who testified that he shot the gun at a tree a couple of years before, and he believed that the slugs would still be embedded in that tree. He even knew which tree he shot at, and he led the police to it. The tree was cut down so the bullets could be removed, but none matched those taken from Patricia. While it was an inventive potential solution to the problem, it proved fruitless. The jury, made up of 12 men, returned their verdict after less than two hours of deliberation. Sharon was found not guilty of the murder of Patricia Jones. But this wasn't the end of things for Sharon. She was immediately taken back into custody to await her next trial. On June 8, 1962, the next trial began. The prosecution, who were not seeking the death penalty, knew they needed a solid argument if they were going to see a conviction. Just like in Patricia's case, there was no physical evidence linking Sharon to the murder. Fingerprints were not able to be lifted from the gun, and no gunshot residue test was performed on Sharon or her daughter Dana. The only witness to the crime was a toddler, who until very recently was believed to be responsible for the shooting. In the original investigation, it was decided that Dana was able to handle a gun and pull the trigger. However, in this trial, the prosecution brought this into question. 
while it was proved that Dana could have pulled the trigger on a similar gun, the actual murder weapon had a stiff trigger, and it would have been too hard for a toddler to shoot it. John Boldies, Sharon's on-again, off-again boyfriend, testified that Sharon had complained to him about wanting a divorce, but not wanting to be stuck with a house that she could not afford. According to John, Sharon offered him $1,000 to kill James. When he refused, she asked if he knew anyone who would. While this is a fairly damning piece of testimony, the defense managed to defuse it during cross-examination. The defense suggested that Sharon was joking about having her husband killed, and John agreed that it probably was just a joke. Sharon's cellmate stated that Sharon had told her all about the murder. The cellmate knew specific details about the crime, leading the prosecution to argue that her testimony was credible. The defense attempted to call the cellmate's credibility into question and claimed that she was an alcoholic and a sexual deviant, therefore she should not be believed. It took the mainly male jury five and a half hours to deliver their verdict. Sharon sat calmly as she was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Sharon's lawyer asked that she be released on bail. As a 22-year-old widow with three children, she was needed at home. This request was not granted, and Sharon was taken back into custody. Her three children remained with their paternal grandparents. Sharon's lawyer started the appeals process immediately. A judge agreed that Sharon's first trial had been unfair due to the jury being improperly drawn, and she was granted a new trial and then released on $25,000 bail. The next trial ended in a mistrial. This was due to a juror having prior contact with one of the lawyers, which was not disclosed during jury selection. Another new trial was granted, this time ending in a deadlock. A fourth trial date was set, and in the interim, Sharon was again released on bail. Sharon met Samuel Francis Polizzi, known as Frank, in Kansas City while awaiting one of her trials. Frank was originally from Chicago, and the hairdresser didn't seem to mind that his new love interest was out on bail and facing murder charges. The pair quickly fell in love and conducted their relationship around Sharon's court appearances. In between the third and fourth trials, while Sharon was out on bail, the couple decided that they were going to go to Mexico. Some sources say they were going for a vacation, Others say that they were going to get married. Regardless of the reason, they left the children with James's father, borrowed $75 from him, and drove for two days from Kansas City to the Mexican border in Texas. Once at the border, they parked their car and took a taxi across the bridge into Mexico. Sharon, who was on bail awaiting a murder trial, was allowed into Mexico, but her car was not as neither Sharon nor Frank were the registered owners. They then took a bus to Mexico City, checked into a hotel, and began their vacation. They both became ill shortly after their arrival, 
But once they recovered, they explored the city separately when they were feeling well enough to get out of their hotel. Sharon decided that if she was going to be walking around Mexico City alone, she would need a gun. Frank had brought a gun to Mexico, but Sharon wanted something else, and she acquired a 22 caliber to carry in her purse for what she claimed was protection. On September 18, 1964, Sharon and Frank had been in Mexico City for a couple of days. Sharon left their hotel and ended up in a bar at a nearby hotel. The stories vary as to how she ended up there. Either she was looking for medicine and ended up in the bar after discovering the pharmacy had closed, or she had an argument with Frank and left to cool off. It was in this hotel bar that Sharon met Francisco Paradas Ordonez. Francisco was a Mexican-born American citizen, and after seeing Sharon at the bar, he offered to buy her a drink, which she accepted. Sometime later, Francisco and Sharon checked into the hotel posing as a married couple. The disinterested clerk checked them in and saw them walk off towards their room. A short time later, the clerk heard a gunshot and went to investigate. He was met by Sharon, who was running from the room, gun in hand. When the clerk tried to stop her from escaping, Sharon shot him in the shoulder. The clerk pushed her back into the room that she had just left and locked the door, trapping Sharon until the police arrived. When they opened the door, they found Sharon, a gun, and Francisco dead with two gunshot wounds to his chest. Sharon was taken into custody and gave her statement. In Sharon's statement, she said that she went back to Francisco's room with him to rest. When he insisted that things become physical, she tried to fight him off, and then she shot him. The police didn't believe her, and she was arrested and charged with both Francisco's murder and for shooting the clerk. Frank learned of Sharon's arrest when the police arrived at his hotel to search his room. In the room was a gun, a 22 caliber, and it turned out to be the same gun that shot Patricia Jones. Frank was arrested and held on firearms charges while Mexican authorities contacted American authorities to share their findings. Finding the gun that shot Patricia answered some questions, but legally it wasn't useful. Sharon had been found not guilty of Patricia's murder, and double jeopardy laws prevented her from being tried again, even with this new evidence. Frank was soon freed and deported back to America, but Sharon was held in Mexico to stand trial for Francisco's murder. There are a few details of this trial, but it ended with Sharon sentenced to 10 years in prison. Sharon's arrest in Mexico meant that she was unable to attend her hearing in Kansas City, forfeiting her bail money, which was at this moment the least of her worries. After Sharon was sentenced, her lawyers appealed. This appeal completely backfired, and Sharon ended up having three additional years added to her sentence. Then things go quiet. A few newspapers printed articles about the crimes that Sharon committed on their anniversaries or as filler during a quiet news week. 
Sharon seemed to be carrying out her sentence quietly. That is, until the evening of December 7, 1969, when Sharon, now 30, was not in her bed for the nightly head count. The prison had put on a movie night for the inmates right around the time that visiting hours finished. After the movie, when Sharon failed to return to her cell, the prison was searched and there was no sign of her. It was theorized that she used the busyness of the evening as a cover. It's believed that she changed into clothing that she had smuggled in for her and simply walked out with the visitors when they left. It is also theorized that a bribed guard helped her escape, perhaps assisting with timing or looking the other way as Sharon walked by. There were rumors that Sharon was given privileges that other inmates were not, such as evenings out for dates and contraband. If this is true, she would likely have things in her possession that she could use as bribes. Law enforcement began searching for Sharon, who had been nicknamed La Pistolera, and my apologies for butchering that pronunciation. Thinking she would try to make it back to America, bus terminals and the border were staked out to look for any sign of her. A report came in saying Sharon had been spotted in the Caribbean, suggesting that police resources had been focused in the wrong place. Soon after, the search for Sharon was called off altogether. While resourcing and jurisdiction were the official reasons given, it is thought that the search was called off because police believed that Sharon was no longer in Mexico. Since 1969, there has been no sign of Sharon Kinney. If she is still alive, she would be approaching her 80th birthday at the time of this recording. It appears that James's father continued to look after the children while Sharon was in prison and after her disappearance. There are some popular theories as to Sharon's whereabouts. One theory is that she traveled to Alaska, where she did have family. But this would require her to cross an American border at some point, maybe more than once if she were to go by car. And for these reasons, this theory isn't considered very likely. 1960s border security, when compared to today's standards, may seem more relaxed, but you would still need documentation to cross into the United States. Perhaps the sighting in the Caribbean really was Sharon, and she did settle there. Some people wonder if she started a new life in a small Mexican town. Sharon may have learned to speak Spanish in prison, allowing her to get by in Mexico. Sharon could have married, had children, and grandchildren and lived out a normal, quiet life. There could also be a more sinister reason why Sharon was never seen again. Some theories claim she may have been killed shortly after her prison break, but these are all just guesses. With not much information to point us in the right direction as to what happened to Sharon, we are left with speculation that becomes progressively more out there and unlikely. After all this time, we still don't know what happened to Sharon. We don't have any idea where she went, or if she even lived long after her prison escape, and she was never brought to justice for her crimes in the United States. And after all this time, I don't know that we will ever know what happened to Sharon Kinney. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. 
For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. I also want to give a huge thank you to Jess for her research and writing for this episode. Once again, she totally knocked it out of the park. And again, I will be at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago in July. And I will be in the UK for the Generation Y They Walk Among Us meetups also in July. So let me know if you can make it. I would love to say hi to any misconduct listeners that will be there. If you want to get this episode early and ad-free, then check out my Patreon. If you subscribe at the $3 per month level or higher, you can listen to the episode before it is released on the regular feed. And thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters. You help make the show possible. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages and let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. And if you have a case you would like to see covered, drop me a line. I recently created a form submission tab on my website, so check that out and send over a case suggestion, and I will do my best to cover it on a future episode of Misconduct. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.